My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Some would call him a former inmate. Some would call him an ex-lifer. Some would call him a formerly incarcerated. And others would call him a returning citizen. But I just know him as Manny Thomas III. At the age of 23, Manny Thomas was sentenced to life in prison and sent to Calipatria State Prison's Level 4 yard, where he spent the first three years of his life sentence. I met Manny while I was in Soledad. We lived in the cell across from one another on the second tier of Z-Wing. We shared our stories of struggle, of triumph. We shared laughter and a lot of burritos together. We met one another's families in the visiting room and talked with anticipation about the days when we'd be free. On Christmas Eve of 2018, Manny's life sentence was commuted by the then Governor Jerry Brown. He was commuted to 14 years to life, went to his psychiatric hearing nearly four months later, and was found suitable by the Board of Parole hearings two months after. Manny was supposed to be in prison for 32 years to life. But he was set free after 15 years and five months on October 4, 2019. He's been out now for 66 days and is loving his life. In this episode, Manny will share his own story of how this experience led to his ultimate transformation. What was it like, Manny, the day you were released from prison? Yeah, the day of my release, as you would imagine, like sleep was impossible. I spent the night actually... You know, all the way into the morning, talking into my celly about what, what you know, what life possibly had before me. What, what type of things would I do first? Who would be waiting on me? What the feeling would be? One of the most, you know, memorable moments started pretty much from the beginning. And uh, my celly prayed for me. We cried together. We talked about when we would be reunited with him in freedom as well. Uh, but even in the midst of doing all of that, it was like, I don't think I could truly guess the idea that after so long, and from a belief for so long that I would probably never be released from prison, like that today was actually the day that I would be being set free. I carried my two buckets down. And after walking through many people congratulating me and giving me hugs and wishing me luck, it still had yet to sit in that today was the day that I would no longer be in prison. Even though I had walked up and down that corridor for the past few years, many, many, many times, the short walk from Z-Wing to R&R seemed like forever. It was early in the morning. It was nowhere near hot, but I was sweating bullets. When I got to R&R, though I had been to R&R many times, picking up packages, turning in appliances, picking up laundry, uh, this time was drastically different because I'd be going to R&R and I'd be leaving the same way that I came to the prison years before. The feeling was different as soon as I walked through the door. Uh, staff had already begun to treat me different. As before, I might have been treated less than human or just not seen as a human being at all. It was just like uh, there were joking comments about me going home and not coming back. The wait was almost unbearable. We, you know, when you release, you sit in r r for hours. I remember after I had changed into the clothes, that my wife had bought me to change into, they had brought me, you know, the all-too-famous peanut butter and jelly sack lunch with 
the chocolate chip cookies that everybody couldn't wait to have. And at this time, it was like the furthest thing from my mind. The only thing that I could think of when he handed it to me is like, I'm not going to eat this, but for some reason, I'm going to keep it. And even to this day, I still have that that lunch with me uh, because it was the last state lunch that I would ever receive. You have to go through exit interviews and talk to a sergeant and whoever the watch commander is at the time. And I remember when I went in there, he said that I didn't look like I was old enough uh, to one, be a lifer and two, be going home. And then he had like cracked a joke. He did, told me to turn around and cuff up. I had a, a warrant in a, in a, in a, in a county and, and, I, and I chuckled because I knew that I had never been in trouble other than my commitment offense. He wished me luck. I thought I was on my way out, but I had to wait another few hours. By the time they had actually let me, you have to walk and do an interview at the entrance to where staff and free staff enter the prison. And I remember being so nervous. My feet felt incredibly heavy, like a way they've never really felt heavy before. And I I was trying to take everything in because this was a whole new perspective. I had never been outside the prison in that way, and I had never entered the prison in that way. And I knew that in that moment that I was entering as a free man shortly to be leaving as a free man. And I think like uh, the idea of freedom was starting to set in. When the officer asked me, they asked you a series of questions, and he asked me where I slept last night. And although I had been in Z-Wing for a few years now, knew the, knew the number of my cell uh, like it was my last name. As he was asking me the questions, I could not grab the information out of my mind for the life of me. And we both laughed about it. And it, it kind of like brought to my awareness on how nervous I actually was that this would be the last conversation that I would be having with a correctional officer as an incarcerated person in prison. You see, I say incarcerated person, like in my mind, I was not free yet. So after that exit interview, we went back, sat for quite some time. Then eventually they called me out to the van. We sat in the van. It was only me and one other guy being released. Another lifer had been down about 22 years. And uh, we sat in the back of a van for a while. They asked us a third exit interview beyond the gate. And then uh, we drove out the gate. And I guess my wife had came a little bit early. So they had sent her back. So actually, when I got to the visitor parking area, there was no one there. There was no feeling attached to it. There wasn't worry. I wasn't disappointed because uh, I understood that, hey, this is this is the beginning of a part of my life that I never thought would happen. So he, the correctional officer, actually gave me a phone, which it, it was it was so weird because he was like, uh, as he handed it to me, I hesitated. He said, well, you know your wife's number, right? And I said, well, of course I do. He said, well, here, use the phone, call her, tell her to come back. We know that she was here because they told me that she was here. So I called her. She must have been right around the corner because I swear as I called her, she was already pulling into the visitor parking lot, driving way too fast for her to be in the parking lot. And it was just an indication of how happy and excited she was driving home. On the way home, things had a different color to them, even though the drive may not had, you know, the most aesthetically pleasing you know, trip. It wasn't like rolling green hills or mountains or anything like that. Everything was taken in with a lens of appreciation because I was seeing things in a way that I hadn't seen them in a very long time. But there was still this feeling in the pit of my gut of disbelief for for hours, I would say. And I must have been wearing it on my face because my wife, as she drove, she would 
constantly look over at me and ask me like what was on my mind, what was I thinking, how did I feel? And I had no words. I could smile, I would hold her hand, she would hold mine, she'd squeeze it tighter at times. I think there was some disbelief um, on her part as well, because even though we had talked about being together in freedom for so long, the way that it just happened and happened so quickly, it was just hard for us to grasp. We ended up stopping at a gas station so she could use the restroom. And this would be the first time that I would have any indication of how much prison had affected me. Because while you're in prison, anytime you run across someone who's not an incarcerated person, like you're expected to get out of their way. So I had this feeling, even though that I was in freedom, like in my mind, I still had on blues. So for these people, I felt like I was in the way and I just kept getting out of the way. And while my wife used the restroom, I had this overwhelming feeling of not knowing what to do with myself. Like it just felt awkward to be in the most common of places. I've been to a gas station a million times before that. People go to gas stations, you know, two, three times a week. But for me, it was just, it was a strange feeling. And in that moment, I realized that I was going to have some adjusting to do. A trip home was about six hours. There were phone calls. People were calling my mother and father. They both called me crying. Uh, They couldn't wait to be with me. They were waiting for me at my wife's home in Riverside. And we had quite some ways, but the overwhelming feeling for majority of that ride was just, I can't believe I am no longer confined within a concrete box. It wasn't until I was on a, the 71 freeway, freeway that I had known very well because I grew up in Corona, California. And as we were coming over the hill, I seen this place called Sierra de Oro, which is in Corona. It's an exit off of a Weir Canyon. And then I think the familiar setting is what kicked it in the realization that I was home. I had an overwhelming feeling of being, you know, home, even though I hadn't reached an actual structure. I hadn't reached, you know, my, res- my place of residence. I wasn't even with the people that I knew and associated home with, but because I had reached a point geographically that I had passed so many times throughout my life, going to so many different life events, it made that realization of being home. I've tried, many people have asked since I've been home to put that in words, and I have yet to do so in a way that even matches the feeling that I was having at the time. Uh, it, it, was just, it was just unbelievable. Eventually, I did make it home. Uh, it was quite a homecoming. My mother, my father, my nephew, my brother, the mother of his children, um, childhood friends that I grew up with, my cousin. We all finally get home. Uh, and, you know, there was laughter and crying and a million pictures, which I wasn't used to. And my wife had cooked enchiladas, which were delicious. But for so long while I was incarcerated, like I had told myself, First meal that I'm actually gonna have was an In-N-Out burger, and it didn't uh, work out. <laughs> but hey, Manny, quick question: Did your family uh, did they know that you were coming home? So nobody knew. Surprised them? Yes, nobody knew except for my mother and father and my wife. Everybody else, it was a complete surprise. I wanted to surprise my mom and my dad, but I felt like I owed it to them for them to know they had been with that, with me on this journey since the very beginning. And I wanted them to kind of be involved in the process and of what it meant for me to be free. So they knew, but no, nobody else knew. It was a complete surprise. Was that the first home that you walked up to, uh, walked into there, your parents' home? No, it was actually my wife's residence. It's my wife's home. They were at your wife's house? 
Yes, they drove down from Vegas. Um, and why did the uh, why did your other relatives and loved ones think that they were there that day? Um, so we kind of did it in spurts. So my mother and father were here first. And because they had retired and moved to Vegas, we used the guys that like, okay, you know, while they're down here, everybody should kind of come see them. So it didn't make it weird um, for everybody to have to come here because, you know, my parents live so far away now. They don't get a, you know, a chance too often to come down. So everybody was really coming to see them. And what was it like when you walked up the steps and opened the door? Who saw you first? Who did you see first? So I saw my mother first. You know, for so long, I had to, you know, there, you know, phone conversations in prison. You could just tell that my situation was weighing so heavily on her heart. And there was nothing I could do to relieve that pressure. Uh, and immediately uh, when we hugged, I could just feel the weight being gone. I knew that there was a part of my parents because they're older that maybe there was a part of them that, you know, had accepted the fact that I may not be able to see them in freedom while they were still alive. Um, so to, to hug my mom, to share those tears and to just know that her child was home and home safe and a sound mind, that's a moment that I'll carry with me forever. And then, of course, you know, me and my dad, you know, we hugged and he just kind of looked at me and told me that he was proud of me. Another moment that it, it was just... My nephew hadn't got here yet, so I beat him here. And the amount of shock when he walked to the, like, when he looked at me at first, he didn't even, like, it didn't even register. Like, he was just like, and then when it registered that it was me that was standing in front of him, I mean, he just collapsed in my arms and cried. And I told him, we talked about how I promised him at a very young age, you know, he had to deal with the death of his mom at a very young age, and I was not there. And I told him that I would do everything in my power to make it home to him. And I just whispered in his ear. I told him, I said, you know, I told you I'd make it home. You know, being reunited with the people who love and care for you the most, you know, who've had profound effects on your life, you know, it's just, like I said, I, I can try to talk about it. I can try to put it in words, but it, it will just never even come close to <laughs> the experience of actually having it. It was, it was amazing. That's awesome, man. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Your cousin, was that the person that you were hugging in the Facebook photos and Facebook videos that uh, posted? Yeah, that's my little nephew. He's, he's, I call him my little nephew, but he's more like a little brother. We're only six years apart. Right. Uh, my, my oldest sister is 17 years older than me, so me and him are only six years apart. So I really, I've always referred to him as my little brother, but he's really my nephew. So. That's awesome. And how old are you today? 37. And you went into prison at what age? So I was incarcerated at 22. I reached my first prison at 23. Were you married before you went to prison or how did that happen? And you said you, your wife was the one waiting for you. So no, I wasn't married when I went to prison. Me and my wife, we knew each other in high school. We were never together, but we've known each other for quite some time. And then I, in 2016, I had top, happened to be talking to a friend of mine for his birthday and she was at his house. And we got kind of, you know, reacquainted then. Uh, we dated for a while. In, two, in December 16, 2017, we got married. What was it like seeing her the first time in civilian clothes? It, it's so unbelievable because, you know, first of all, for someone in her, her shoes to make the commitment that she made with, with the uncertainty of if and when home was a possibility 
and you know, you know, very real possibility of being so far away, and then to have it happen within the first two years of our marriage, again, like it, it, it's just too, it's too baffling to like really put in words. She was overly excited. I remember that I had to like tell her, like, okay, let me go so we can leave. Like, I, I, I had that overwhelming feeling, like, let's leave before they like change their mind. You know what I mean, there's that thought in the back of my mind, like, hey, let's get out of here. Um, I wanted so badly to get off the ground. I remember in days leading up to my uh, release, I was just like, oh, you know, I'll take pictures and all that. But I was like, no, the minute they let me go, I don't even think I ever looked back. I didn't look at the yard. I didn't look at the gates. I didn't look at the towers. I just wanted to leave. Thank you for sharing that, man. It's an amazing story. It's a miraculous story. How were you able to wrap your head around that sentence? When you heard those words come out of the judge's mouth, what happened? It really was like, it was blank. It's funny because there was such a feeling of emptiness and confusion at the time to where I remember that like when there's that feeling of the sound being muffled and going in and out and Actually, the part where I remember like getting back into it was he said, you know, Mr. Thomas, if you were ever paroled, you would be on parole for the remainder of your life. And I was just like, like what? Like it just didn't make any sense. And then, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how did I wrap my head around it? Initially, that I mean, that didn't happen. There was no there was no comprehension of what was going on or what my life would be like from this point. It was a strange feeling because when they put me in the holding cell after I left the courtroom, bailiffs were coming back. One of them shed tears and said that he had been doing it for 18 years and had never seen anybody get the time I got for the crime that I committed. In the circumstances, my co-defendant was crying and he was saying things like, oh, I owe you my life. And I just remember telling him, like, you don't owe me nothing. You owe, you know, your aunt and your grandmother who were here every day you know, having to go through this experience with you. But the words were being said, but it was almost as if I wasn't thinking uh, of myself at all. Uh, When I got back to the county jail, it was almost as like people could read on my body language what had happened. So it was just this complete isolation. So, you know, I sat on my bunk. I was by myself. No one had came over to say anything. I was on the bottom bunk. So, you know, we can create like curtains. And I pulled the curtain and there was, I, I began to cry. I think that was probably the, the first time I, I was, you know, realizing the weight of what just had happened to me. And then almost immediately there was this thought of, there's no more crying in prison. You can't do this. It was almost like I, I knew that, you know, survival somehow depended on it. So I just snapped out of it and it was just numb. So initially that, you know, no real concept of dealing with my time came until I started to accept responsibility for the harm that I had committed. And initially, there was no wrap in my head around 30 years to life, 32 years of life in prison. Like 2036 sounded like futuristic numbers in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. So freedom was just like, okay, that's out. So yeah, there was, there was no real comprehension of, uh, of what was happening. Did it ever cross your mind that you could possibly die in prison? I almost accepted it as a certainty. You know, in the beginning, I didn't know how I was going to survive. So even though I had been in the county jail for, you know, almost two years at that point, when we get to talking about prison, uh, you know, I had only heard, you know, the horror stories. I had never been 
incarcerated myself. So I had no idea how this 23-year-old kid who wasn't a part of a gang uh, was going to survive in, you know, concrete jungle. I had, I had no idea. So I didn't know would I die at the hands of another man or simply die because my time had ran out. Because at that time, you just didn't hear about people being released off of life sentences. You know, life meant life. And so I had pretty much just accepted the fact that, you know, this was it. Now it was about deciding how I was going to spend that time. And, you know, after I had received my time, I don't think I contacted anybody. I kind of just went into this deep hole and I didn't write letters for about six months. I didn't call anybody. It wasn't until I was in reception. I, you know, I hadn't been in reception for a while at Wasco State Prison, you know, long enough to where they actually made me a porter in one of the buildings. And one day after serving chow, an officer comes in and he goes, are you, are you Thomas? I said, yeah. He said, come on. I'm like, where are we going? He said, your parents are here. And, you know, people don't get visits in reception because you're behind the glass. The prison's far away. And I knew then I was in a world of trouble because I hadn't contacted anybody. But the reason I hadn't contacted anybody was I was literally trying to figure out in my mind what, how I was going to do this. And, you know, what, what would it be like for the people who love me most? And, you know, my, my mom was not happy. She, she told me that I was not in this alone. And it was time for me to start recognizing that I took parts of people who love me with them. And to shut them out only makes it worse and that I was going to need people in this time. It wasn't until then that I had actually started to reach back out to people and write letters and make phone calls, stuff like that. She sounded like she had a lot of wisdom and a lot of love for you. Oh, yeah. You, you know, mother's love. There's nothing like it. That's right. Well, what crime were you convicted of? And would you be willing to briefly share this story? Yeah, so I was convicted of three counts of attempted murder, three counts of assault with a deadly weapon. And firing from a motor vehicle, I went to a party with some friends. There was a disagreement. There was a you know, back and forth outside. It never really had got physical. I was pepper sprayed. And then while I was leaving, I fired 10 shots from the vehicle into the crowd. One individual was hit in the legs and I was arrested the next day. There wasn't a thought about getting out of prison. My change came because when I was willing to take responsibility for how I got to where I was and how I got to a point where I would take an illegal firearm and you know, fire it at a crowd of people and begin to do the work on myself, what I had realized was, is in some form or fashion, my entire life, I had been a taker. And when I say takers, I'm not talking about like, it's not necessarily physical. Like I wasn't stealing things, but I, you know, I was taking people's trust. I was taking people's love and not returning it. So with the realization that I might spend the rest of my life in prison, I didn't want that to be all that it was. So I, I had started to make a decision so that I was no longer going to be a taker and that I was going to give. No, I was going to return love. I was going to return wisdom and I was going to be there for people that I could be, you know, in, in the best way that I could be there for them, whether it be in comfort, wisdom, I was going to somehow, you know, be the child that my parents raised. And I was going to hold fast to the morals, to the things that they had taught me when I was young and I was coming up until I was going to finish my education. My, you know, I had an older sister named Tracy who went to Stanford, you know, and graduated with a degree in engineering. And she always wanted me to finish school. So I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish school. So 
there were small changes. There were incremental things that began to happen. I knew that I didn't want to go deeper into the jail. I didn't want to experience the whole. I didn't want to do things like that. So, you know, I went down the spiritual path first, kind of got some spiritual grounding. Then after that, around 2009, I started my educational travel. And then eventually when I finished my education, I just went into service, whether I participated in groups or facilitated groups or created the two groups of my own. Like it was just about being a life of service. I didn't realize freedom was even a possibility until about 2016. There had been, you know, small changes. First you had SB 260, then you had SB 261, but even those gave me a chance at freedom in, you know, 25 years, Uh, nothing relatively close. There was no way for me to earn time down. So it wasn't about freedom in that point. It was just about being a man of value. I would say my true transformation, when I realized I truly changed, I was in the yard with a friend of mine and we were walking laps and there were two gentlemen who got into a fight uh, who grew up together. They were friends, but they were you know, living according to this gangster code and mentality. And they were, they were co-defendants and one had, you know, told on the other and then they ended up being on the same yard and one was you know four months away from going home the guy who got got told on was only four months away from going home but he allowed his quote-unquote homies you know to convince him like oh you got to deal with that so as they're fighting on the yard you know he had knocked his friend out and he was just he was just as he was out he was just pummeling him and I knew that that was a dire situation like I didn't know in the moment that he was going to die but I knew it was a dire situation And my thought immediately went to their families. I thought about how they were both going to be affected, how this who, you know, this gentleman who was four months away from home and had a wife who now wasn't going to go home for a very long time, if ever, how he didn't even want to do it, but he allowed a system that, you know, he didn't agree with to dictate how his life was going to turn out. And in that moment, I realized that that was a stark difference between what my attitude would have been prior to that. You know, I had become so numb to this type of behavior before then. So even though I wasn't participating in violence, I normalized it. So if that would have happened before then, I would have just immediately thought about showers. And I, every time I tell the story, like, you know, incarcerated men, we know we've all had that, that thought. Like when something bad happens and they're going to shut down program, dang, I'm not going to shower. But this time it was different. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about my showers. It was simply about how these two men life would be changed in their families. And, 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 and in that moment I knew like, okay, my situation is different. And I even began to ask myself like, okay, how can I keep people from subjecting themselves to a school of thought um, that's going to keep them, you know, in, in mental chains and in mental captivity uh, you know, what stand could I make as an individual that would produce some type of change? So I would say at that point, my mind frame was on, okay, now we can do something different. Was that the first time you saw somebody murdered in prison or killed in prison? No, absolutely not. Uh, matter of fact, my fr- my very first yard. So when I got to um, Calipat, we were on lockdown for an extended period of time. When I first got there, I would say it was like, maybe six or seven months to a year before I had ever seen our first yard. I had been outside because I had been visited, but I hadn't been to the yard. They called yard out of nowhere one day. It said yard. I was confused. I didn't even know, you know, what to do. So I just basically followed my Sally's lead. 
I mean, we were on the yard for maybe about an hour. And I was on the weight pile. And I could tell, like, everybody's attention shifted, but no one, like, really said anything. And I didn't know what was going on. So I just kind of followed everybody's gaze. And there were three Hispanic gentlemen uh, in the showers. And two of them were attacking another one for what seemed like an eternity at the time. And the yard didn't get put down. There was no alarm or anything until basically the other guy had fell out. And the other two just like, it was weird. It was just like, they just lay down on the ground. Some other guys came and took the weapons and ran. And um, they came and picked up uh, the body of the gentleman who had been, been getting stabbed and took him off the yard, put him, put him in the van, took him off the yard. And as soon as they got outside the gate, they just resumed the yard. And I remember thinking like, where am I? And there was this realization that no one's here to help me. I couldn't believe like, why isn't, you know, one, why isn't anybody helping him? Why isn't staff helping them? Like, why aren't they trying to figure out anything? It's like, okay, we'll just take him off the yard, handcuff the other two guys and okay, go on about your business. So that kind of created that mentality uh, in my own head. I remember that day, like that was actually the first day that I, I started taking working out series. Like, oh, I guess this is something I better do because there was this realization that like, hey, look, you were by yourself. And you're going to be responsible for your own safety and well-being. So uh, you better take it seriously. It sounds like when you shared that you had that transformational moment when you when you saw the the guys beating up his former friend on the yard, that you had an experience of a great experience of empathy. And how did that impact you from the for the rest of your term after that moment? So after that moment, like I mean, and you say, so that concept is is really what it's all about. So like even like before my incarceration, it was literally about me, 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 me. And when I got to the point where it wasn't about me and it was about, you know, us as a collective, like, so when we look at, we're all equally a part of a bigger whole. So when we have that mindset, what I do affects you, what you do affects me. So that means that we can build together. We can either build together. We can fall together. Like your problems, whether or not they affect me directly, I need to see them as my problems. So it really set up for the rest of my time because it was a blessing. So what began to happen was, so when you start to think about other people in that way, what's actually happening too is a lot of the insecurities that I may have had or worries like, oh my God, if I'm walking on the yard and I'm conducting myself in this way, this will happen to me or they'll see me in this way. I'm not having those thoughts anymore. So now what became paramount was about walking in integrity and being a person of service and things like that, rather than worried about if I'm not carrying this knife or if I'm not part of political conversations or if I'm not in the day room playing pinochle or if I'm not drinking and all these other things, or I'm not getting high. Like that doesn't matter anymore because what I'm doing now is, okay, how can I pull the next guy out from being, you know, feeling like he has to spend his entire day in the day room playing pinochle or subjecting himself to what the quote unquote big homies want, getting people to clearly see like the people who are saying they care about you really don't care about you. They just want you to be a part of a system that they think is serving them in a way or gives them power or clout. So it became at that time for me to be like, okay, how can I not only shift the narrative from my own life, but how can I be a person of value in other people's life? Because the, the, you know, the sad reality is, you know, there were a, a bunch of people around me who weren't lifers. And so as opposed to when I was living life and it was all about me and I was taking, 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 I had an opportunity to give back in a way that is unique 
to only incarcerated individuals because there's a bunch of people around me who are going to have the opportunity to be back in society sooner rather than later. And the only chance that they have of not coming back and being subjected to the same type of treatment is if I'm able to help them change the perspective. If I, if we can help them to develop tools to where they can deal with situations differently than they would have been dealing with them before um, they were incarcerated. Like, so there was an opportunity for me to be useful even where I was at. And it gave my life purpose and meaning. And it, it gives you drive when a place at times when there's no hope and where things are just down and, and, and gloomy and, you know, you feel like there's no color. I was able to create color and to create meaning simply by allowing myself to be a tool of change. And everybody began to see it. Like even the things that I was beginning to do within my prison life was changing me and changing my behavior and changing my thought process to where, you know, people that were free, you know, when my family would come see me, they could see that like that I was reinvigorated and they began not to worry. Like, so the benefits of doing a little good here, a little good there were just rippling out. Like, they were radiating from me and changing not only my perspective about where I was, but it was changing how other people felt about where I was at. They were worried about me, but it was just like, well, okay. Like I remember one time I had a friend, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and visiting. He had came to see me. He says, I'll never forget that I came thinking I was going to uplift you, but you uplifted me in ways that I could never imagine. Wow. And to hear, and to hear one of my friends who I, I look, we're the same age, but I look up to him. He's, always been a man of honor. He's always been a man of integrity. Um, you know, he's, I look, he's impressive to me. So to have my friend who I look at in that way, to say that about me in my current situation, it was just like, okay, I'm doing something right. And, and it served my bottom line. Like I said, at the time I wanted to become a person of value and, and, you know, that was supporting that. So what's the biggest difference from who you were then and your thinking before you were incarcerated to who you are today and how you think today? So I think I think the simplest way for me to illustrate the biggest difference between who I was uh, before I got incarcerated and the, gym, the man that I am now is simply to say that in my mind, I was never enough before I was incarcerated. I was never comfortable in my own skin. People are surprised by that because how I masked that was I, I you know, ran around with this air of confidence and you know even cockiness, but in, within myself, so many other you know maladaptive things and destructive things were happening because I just wasn't comfortable with who I was as a human being. I never felt like I belonged, and I just didn't feel like I'd measure up. Today, I'm enough as I am. Whatever faults I may have, um, when insecurities still arise. I understand that I'm I'm fully human and everybody has insecurities, but I know to focus on what is good, uh, what will be. Uh, those times are much less than the good times. And what's beautiful is now I find strength in my down moments because I'm willing to reach out to people in those moments. And you get to see and experience a level of love when you're willing to be vulnerable. In my past, it just it just wouldn't happen. I mean, that wasn't even a part of my belief system. Uh, where, you know, vulnerability was seen as a strength. So f- for me now, it's just like uh, my willingness to admit uh, when I don't know something and I don't have to act like I have it all figured out. I don't have to go it alone. I don't have to respond to things um, the way that people think that I should respond to them. And it's okay to verbalize when I don't feel like I'm enough. It's okay to say, hey, you know, every once in a while I may need some 
validation from those who are closest to me. You know, it's okay to hurt. It's okay to feel like I'm not enough. And so now, after being gone for so long and, you know, having the opportunity to develop and to, to acquire a language to express that has freed me in a multitude of ways. I would say that that's probably the biggest difference between who I was before I was incarcerated and now. It's just now I am enough as I am just as me. Now, there, I don't have to put on any facades. I don't have to react in any culturally like accepted ways about what it means to be strong or a man or independent or none of that. Like my job is to just be human and to see other people for their humanity and, and to live in a collective way instead of worrying about, you know, being completely individualistic. Like I just don't even support that notion anymore. We took when you start to break down the many different reasons why somebody would join the gang or why somebody would submit to rules that they don't even believe in. Like you have people who, you know, were never racist a day in their life, but then they get to prison. And it's just like I'm going to succumb to this idea that hey, I can't eat with that person because they're this particular race. I can't have these type of conversations with this person because they're that particular race. I mean, those are all coming from levels of fear and insecurity. When you look at you know substance abuse, a lot of that comes from not being able to look at yourself in the mirror. Or, or deal with the problems that are in front of you. Like, so we could talk about for days. And um, what's, what's amazing is, is when you talk to men in group and, you, you know, you're willing to share about how you were so insecure and how about, you know, what your belief was about what it meant to be a man and where they came from. Like, so many people were operating on a belief system that they never even questioned where it came from. Like, you can't be, you know, autonomous if here it is, you're following rules, not only one that you don't agree with, but you have no idea where they came from. The people who have instituted these rules have long been gone, and yet you're still subjecting yourself to them. So if that isn't a sign of insecurity or a lack of, of awareness, self-awareness and self-worth, I don't know what is. Ooh. And it happens in society too. So yeah, I mean, I would, I would absolutely say the, you know, the notion that men in prison were suffering from insecurities and even the ones that even the, even the ones that may be willing to be seen in that way because of the way society and because of the culture that we've created about, you know, being a man walking in alone and not being able to, to express ourselves in certain ways without being referred to in negative connotations and stuff like that. You've lost a language to even be able to express how it is you're feeling. So and there's some lack of even know-how for those individuals who are willing to do so. Uh, you know, they don't know how to do it. So absolutely. I would say insecurities were, it's rampant in prison. Yeah, exactly. Now, Manny, uh, 32 years to life, uh, you come home in 15. You were one of the few who receive a commutation. Could you walk us through when you first had your thought that you were going to file for a commutation, what that entails? basically describing the first thought about even requesting a commutation until the moment you were called in the counselor's office. So I had been around people who had been talking about commutations, filing for a commutation, and even been with a gentleman who received one as early as 2014, I believe. And at that time, asking for one for me was just like, no. The, the sad truth is I just believed in my mind that, look, I had to know somebody in the right place. 
it was never going to be given to somebody like me. That, that was just my belief at the time. What does that mean? Like, if, if I'm going to be completely, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest, like, please do. I don't, I don't see them giving a young African American male convicted of shooting, convicted of, you know, three attempted murders, uh, three assault with the deadly weapons in an all white county, <laughs> in Orange County of affluence, like, the idea that they're going to say, you know, here's the second chance at life. Like that just didn't even, that wasn't real for me. And I think, I believe it said more about me and the way in which I viewed the world than it said about other people's. But, but that was just my, my belief at the time. That just wasn't going to happen for somebody like me. And I, and you know what? I held that belief even up until you fast forward to 2000. Sheesh. 16, I've seen multiple people receive commutations, and it wasn't until, you know what, it wasn't until 2018, I went for, even though we had talked about it with my friends, I went to my documentation hearing, which is a hearing that you've got to have five years before they're thinking about, you know, sending you to board, and I had, went through the whole conversation with you know, the board member that asked you the questions, you know, she kept asking me, do you have any questions? Do you have any questions? Do you have any questions? So finally I had asked her a question. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't remember what the question was. And she basically like did a little board hearing right then and there. But normally the documentation normally takes people a few minutes, 30 minutes at tops. I was in mine for two and a half hours. And at the end I asked her, I said, do you think, and before I could even get it out of my mouth, she said, you should file for a commentation. And I said, well, why is that? And she says, because it's people like you who are looking. And finally, in that moment, I said, well, okay, maybe it's possible. So I went, I believe that was in February. Went to my documentation in February. There was still a whole lot of self-doubt that I was playing with. I filled my commutation out in July. They came and seen me and interviewed me. The governor's office came and seen me, interviewed me in October, and they issued my commutation on Christmas Eve. What was that anticipation like? You know, I mean, generally in in prison, people know that the governors generally give out a few few commutations, sometime around Christmas, sometimes around Easter, sometimes around Thanksgiving. And you know that you had that interview. What type of person interviews you, first of all? So it's an investigator from the governor's office. He comes down. Uh, he spends some time with you. He lets you know that nothing you say will be confidential. He records the entire thing. He basically walks you through your whole life. He's going he's gonna to ask you questions about how you became the individual that you were, some of the you know, life-defining moments, what happened the night you committed your crime, and what have you done since then, and basically, like, what are your plans for the future? Um, right. No, no stone is going to go unturned, but... I had, I mean, if I'm being honest, my, my doubt gave me an advantage because I walked in there feeling like I don't have anything to lose. And because my walk for so long had been to just tell the truth, like it was easy for me to have the conversation. It was easy for me to talk about, you know, how damaged I was and where my belief systems came from. It was easy for me to talk about some of the things that I had seen in prison and when my shift had begun. And then, it, you know, when we get to talking about when we got to my life and that became a time of service, like I was so proud of the individual that I had become 
know, as far as receiving my education, helping other brothers, building programs with other brothers. And, uh, you know, by the time you know, I'm reaching Soledad and meeting people like you, meeting people like Ted, meeting people like Jay and Marcelli 88, who wears his heart on his sleeve, like meeting so many people that were so genuine and their life was so built around service to where it was just like, okay, you know, this is who we are. And we were, you know, unapologetic about it because in that environment, we had created an environment of being different. There was no, we weren't wearing prison on us. We weren't fearful about making positive change. And we wanted people to know that like, hey, this stench of what I've done in the past will not stick with me. I have the ability to change the narrative. I have the ability to recognize my wrongdoings and to live a life of, some people will say retribution, but I I like to look at it as live a life of forgiveness to be completely opposite of what I was in the past. So to sit in front of someone and to bear myself, like it wasn't a burden for me. In fact, I think I invited it. Like uh, there was a part of me that even though if this doesn't happen for me, like I wanted the world to take notice and say, hey, come look at us, look at what we're doing. Look at what's possible for people who are taking their rehabilitation serious and look at what's possible who, for people who begin to believe in community because there was some hope there for me. Like if we were able to do that, some of the things that we've been able to do in prison, what is possible for the greater community? And if, they, if they're taking that same look at their life, how could they change some of society, society's problems if they came at it? With the same vigor, with the same love, with the same connectedness, with the same clarity of mind, and be willing to hear somebody, you know, be willing to be different and, and be willing to be wrong and to hear somebody who I don't necessarily agree with. Like, if we could have that value and create that environment in prison, what could we do and what could society do if they adopted the same mentality? So I think I went into it with that, with that sense, like, Look, this is what's possible for us as a people in general. If 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 people can take a look at us and say, okay, hey, look at this example that they've said. If they can do it, why not me? Like that was my hope going into it. Like, hey, look, man, we can be the author of our own life. I wanted everybody like to walk away with that, whether they were a teenager in middle school or whether they were a senior citizen in a convalescent home. Like, you still have the ability to be the author of your own life. So let's go create it. You are everything you need within yourself. Let's go create that change. So I think I like I, that's just the mentality that I was wearing with me. And I carried it in the interview. So that, you know, the process for me, it didn't seem burdensome. And even afterwards, you know, you have that period that you have to wait. You don't know, you know, and they tell you, you know, when they're done, they're like, hey, look, we're not going to tell you if you don't get this. And I think that that, you know, for most people who file for a commutation, like, you know, that brought a certain amount of stress. You know, my celly at the time, he had filed for a commutation too. So that, that stress, but I didn't have it because I still had the mentality like, you're not going to give it to me anyway. Like, no, I was just appreciative <laughs> for the consideration, you know? Yeah. So, so around Christmas time is coming. Were you one of the first ones to be called or read the 10th one? I don't know the number, unfortunately, because I was at work. The job that I had in prison, we cleaned the hospital. So we never get it. They are. And uh, I was coming back from work. I actually came back a little early so that I could have an opportunity to go to the yard and call my wife. And when I walked in the building, there was a captain I had never seen before. There was a lieutenant and there was my building officer. And when I walked in, my building officer said, well, there's Thomas right there. So 
I, you know, I looked at it, I, I didn't recognize him. So I was just like, oh, you know, hey, how you doing? So I thought maybe it was something work-related. And I asked my building officer, because I, I had missed the unlock. So I wasn't able to go get a change of clothes and a jacket and all that. And I said, uh, you know, is it, possible, is it possible for me to get, you know, an unlock so I can go up and get my jacket and I can head out to the yard? And he goes, no, you can't go to the yard. So I was like, like, what do you mean I can't go to the yard? Like, I haven't done anything wrong. Why can't I go to the yard? He's like, well, you're not going to the yard. Uh, the captain had walked away, then he comes back. And he's like, I'm going to need you to stay here. So when he's doing that, now I'm worried. You know, my, you know, in prison, when you're not living a life of crime, what you begin to think, like the, the association is, oh, my God, what has happened at home that they're about to tell me about? So I'm actually having that thought, like, oh, my God, like, you know, who, who are they about to tell me something bad about? Right. I happen to look in the building and there was a, a brother of mine by the name of Robert Esquivel and he was sitting on a desk and he looked nervous. And I said, what's going on? Did they call you too? And he said, yeah. And I said, is this for the commutations? He said, I think so. Man, I was nervous. I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, again, my celly was with me. He was more excited than I was. He was just like bouncing off walls. I eventually, so eventually they did call me up. I went in there. They dialed, they didn't tell you, they still didn't tell you anything. They sat you in the chair, they dialed a number. And then when uh, the party picked up, the captain goes, this is Captain such and such at uh, you know, Soledad Prison. I have inmate such and such, state your CDC number, state my CDC number. And then there was a lady on the phone and she said that she was from the governor's office. And like here, it was like, now it's the reverse. So when I got sentenced it was muffled because this terrible thing was happening to me. And then now it was muffled because I couldn't believe what was happening to me in a positive way. And uh, she said, oh, we just want you to know that uh, we're going to be commuting your sins. And I, I feel guilty because uh, there was a part of me like, well, are you just going to let me go home? And she was like, I want you to know we're not letting you go home because you did commit a crime. And we want you to know that it was a serious crime you committed. Uh, but we're going to give you the opportunity to go aboard. Uh, earlier, you should be going within the next six months. And she was like, "Do you have anything to say?" And I was at a loss for words. Like I, I, I didn't know what to say. So I just, I was like, "Thank you." And she said, uh, "Mr. Thomas, just go in there and be who you were." Uh, when we interviewed you, we have every, you know, every belief that you know the board will agree with us and they will let you go home. And then she said, "There's one thing that I want you to know uh, about why you received this commutation." She said. We believe that you are going to help others in your position. And we know, and this is what threw me off. She says, we know that you will not make us regret our decision. And I was just, I was blown away, you know, that she was willing to, you know, basically, you know, say that about me because for so long, you know, I hate to admit it, but I was just a number on a piece of paper. I was just a C file. I was just you know, annual to annual. It didn't matter how much good I did. Uh, so there were still, you know, some of those old security insecurities popping up. And she said, hey, you know, you got a second chance. Go make the, you know, go make the most of it. I was still in the haze when I walked out. I said he hugged me. And I felt terrible because he wasn't celebrating with me, although he had filed for a commutation. As my, well, I said that the wrong way. He didn't receive the news that I received, but he was celebrating more than I was. He snapped me out of it. He says, you have every right to celebrate in this moment. This is the day they gave you back your life to be with your family. Let's celebrate together. 
And it, it changed the way I viewed him because it, it would have been easy for him to have, you know, judgment or bitterness or, or whatever. But he was so happy. And he was even like playing like defense against other people who were trying to steal my joy in that moment. Like uh, he wouldn't allow me to be around anything negative. He actually asked the officer if we can get out to the yard so I can go call my family. And he like escorted me out to the yard. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's just it's I called my wife first. Um, I couldn't even get the words out. I cried. She cried. Uh, and then I called my parents. My mom couldn't even utter a word. She just screamed. Uh, <laughs> That's so uh, powerful. Yeah, it, it's amazing because here it is. It, it's so many parallels. So like when I got convicted and I was crying and I had thought like there's no crying in prison, I'm boohooing on the phone now with no care of who's seen me or, you know, you know, that, that, that notion that there's no crying in prison was, was out of here, you know? And even though it had been for years, I didn't, I didn't really, you know, subject myself to, you know, prison quote unquote rules for a very long time. But in that moment, it was just such a relief to know that even though it wasn't, my freedom wasn't guaranteed at that moment, there was still work to be done mm-hmm. to have the, the opportunity to, to be with my family in a short period of time. It was amazing. Manny, what would you say to those family members of the incarcerated who are wanting their loved one to come home like you, who may feel that their sentence is too long? What would you say to them about what's possible, Manny? So I'll say this. Change is absolutely possible. But I think what's most important is nothing Regardless of your circumstances, how you got there, what you may feel is just or unjust, nothing is just going to be given to you. You have to work. Um, You have to be willing to look at yourself in the mirror and be honest about what change that you do need to make in order to be the most valuable person in your life. There's you have to be accountable for you. You can no longer allow the environment to dictate uh, the outcomes of your life. You know, so many, I've heard so many people tell the stories like, oh, I don't have a choice or in order for me to do this. No, what's actually happening is you're going to have to humble yourself and put yourself in situations to where you can do those. And that may, and that may mean not being on the yard you're on. That may be, you know, disassociating yourself from people that you think are your friends. It may mean to revalue, uh, you know, some of your belief systems. It may mean asking for help. It may mean seeming weak. It may be shedding tears, but regardless of the thing is you have to have the strength. You have to have, be willing to be, you know, live a life of, you know, courage from behind those walls and say, I am going to take action steps so that I am creating the life where it's even possible for me to be home. And you have to do it without knowing what the finish line looks like. Look, I had no idea that this was going to happen for me. I had no idea how it was, but I knew one thing. I knew that my life had to mirror the same responsibility. I had to walk in a way that says, hey, look, I am no longer, not only am I no longer the person I was when I got here, but I'm going to be a productive member of society. I'm going to be a person who you know, doesn't need to be feared or you know, doesn't need to take shortcuts or doesn't need to blame my circumstances on outside agencies. Like, I don't need to do that. Here, I'm going to take responsibility for myself. So I want families to know, like, it is possible. It's not easy. But I would encourage them to tell, if someone's struggling, tell them, look, you risked your life, your freedom, and, and, and you know, essentially their life and their freedom for things that didn't matter. 
be willing to do the same for everything that does matter. You know, I hate to use a poker analogy, but like put all your chips on the table for positive things. Be willing to start from scratch. Be willing to empty out what you think you know and, and you know, and receive. The tools are there. It, 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 you know, they may not be in abundance in some places, uh, but they're definitely there. And for those, you know what? And even in the situations where they're not there, create it. You have the ability to do so. And now's the time. Like it, there's been a shift. You know, there's been eyes that have been opened. People will see you if you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing to be on this side of the fence. And there's people fighting for you now. You know, the brothers of service that have got out, we, we haven't forgot about those we have left behind. But our job is to create a space where we can be seen. You know, it's not for us to muddy the water by keep acting in responsible ways because every act of irresponsibility, you know, it's just kind of like justifies like, well, see, this is why we have those type of places because those type of people need to be there. This is your invitation not to be those type of people. If you really want to, if you really want to be home uh, with your family, show that in your behavior, make your family what's most important and everything that you're doing from the time you wake up and go to that first child to the time that last lockup, Make sure that every behavior that you're participating in is something that's bringing you closer to the people you say you love the most. Uh, and, you know, encourage them. Tell them our stories. You know what I mean? If it can happen for me, it can happen for them, whether they believe it or not. Because I'm, you know, I didn't believe it, but I knew that I had a job to do. I knew that there was a way that I was supposed to behave. My job was to just do, let everything else figure itself out. First of all, I want to thank you for offering that inspiration and hope and encouragement that it is possible. I myself was sentenced to 25 years to life at the age of 20. I spent all my 20s and all my 30s and got out of prison at the age of 41. Manny Thomas was sentenced to 32 years to life and was able to leave prison after 15 years and 10 months. And through his own admission, it came after he started taking responsibility. I heard you use that language several times, Manny, take responsibility and that you had to go before the parole board. Mm -hmm. For For that family member, for that loved one, what does it mean to take full and complete responsibility for what we did and for what we caused? So uh, uh, earlier I had mentioned about being author of your own life. Like, so we can't, you know, don't, we can't blame people for our shortcomings. Like, because at the end of the day, we had a choice at some point. And whatever, whatever we chose to do, we chose to do. Uh, you really have to look at how you contributed to um, the circumstances of your life and own it, regardless of what it looks like. Like, own it. And, and know that even though it may be something that you have done, that action doesn't have to define you for the remainder of your life. So in the same way that we can take ownership for the wrong that we've done, we could flip that and begin to do positive things. So it was never going to, I could have easily, you know, sat and I said, well, I didn't do this. I, you know, I didn't necessarily do everything you accused me of. And, you know, hey, I was, a, you know, I was approached first at the party and all those other things. Like I could have came up with a million self-justifications on why I did what I did. I could have blamed, you know, and, you know, I was African-American. Man, this, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, look, taking responsibility for me meant, okay, I had to be honest about who I was and how I got there, how damaged I was, things that I was doing wrong, how I was making things worse, what I did to the people in my life, what beliefs that I, that I held that I wasn't willing to challenge, 
what areas of my life where I was being cocky, where I needed to be humble? Where was I taking lead where I should have been following? There's, there's a whole series of questions that you need to be asking yourself so that you can get a clear picture, not only of what your life could look like, but who you are as an individual. When, I, when we talk about taking responsibility, it's not even necessarily taking responsible for just the things that you've been convicted of. It's taking responsible for the things that you haven't been convicted of. It's taking responsible for the damage that you've caused. It's taking responsible for the good that you've done and be willing to do more. Like being responsible is saying, look, I'm going to take charge of my life. I'm going to recognize the fact that life isn't happening to me, that I am a willing participant in this thing, and I have a choice to take certain action. So I would say that that, that's the best way I can explain what responsible means to me. Right on, Manny. I think you hit the nail on the head. So Manny Thomas III, free. And where are you living at today? So unfortunately, I have to do my transitional housing. <laughs> no, I say unfortunately, but no, I have to do my transitional housing in Lancaster. How's that and going? It, you know what? It's, it's, there are challenges, uh, but one thing that I've learned to accept about challenges while I was in prison and in society alike is challenges are opportunities for growth. So there are challenges, but the program is, is still teaching me things about myself. It's still giving me tools to become a better version of myself. It's making me exhibit patience because even though I would like to be home with my wife in Riverside, I understand that there are still rules that I must follow, uh, even though even though I don't, I may not know why, but hey, uh, they're there for a reason. It's given me an opportunity to reacclimate myself in a timely fashion. So, but things are going good, working. I'm still living a life of service, uh, adding value to other people's life. Uh, I, I'm I'm happy beyond beyond measure, and uh, just taking one day at a time. And you're no longer in Soledad. You're no longer hearing the bells and whistles every morning, the, the loud bells telling you when it's chow time, the whistles, it's closing. Those sounds are no longer in your ears. No longer. What's a, what's, a, what's a typical day in the life of Manny today? So wake up, I try to start my day off service. So, you know, there's normally some type of cleaning. There's certain days that I have classes and I'm still participating in cell phone programs. That's great. Um, uh, there is, you know, opportunity for me to my work. I still go and, you know, help men deal with um, uh, gender behavior problems and and to take a look at how those our beliefs about certain gender roles have been harmful for us. Love that work; it's fulfilling. On the weekends, I'm lucky enough to spend time with family. I go bowling every weekend. I love it. <laughs> um, I'm eating everything in sight. <laughs> Uh, you know, my metabolism isn't working the way it was when I was younger. So it seems like I look at food and gain weight. But hey, it, it, it's it's a blessing. You're on a seafood diet. Yeah, seafood. I eat it. That's what happens. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I see food, it goes down. Yeah, and if I look at it, I gain weight. I don't even gotta eat it. No. What what would you say in wrapping up the interview? What 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 would you say? One or two things have been just. Uh, some of the greatest experiences since you've been set free after all that time. So, you know what? I, I think about a multitude of things. I've had great experiences. I've been places with my wife, but I, I, I realized something yesterday that fuels me every time I think about it. So I'm blessed to where the community that we created while we were incarcerated men, um, there's quite a few of us home now. And because it's so fresh for me, I can still remember conversations that we had 
in prison about things that we would do if and when we were freed. And to see, you know, you, to see Hugo, to see Richie, to see Graham, to see JB, to see so many men who I was incarcerated with doing so many phenomenal things, like that in itself is amazing. And it reinforces the idea that we are only bound by the perimeters of our mind. So if we can free up our, our, our mental boundaries, what we can do in life is limitless. And it's not like you hear people say that, but it's I'm watching it happen. And I'm watching it happen with men who at some point in their life had no hope, who had no idea of when they would be free. And now not only are they out, they're living you know, to the fullest. They're, they're changing other people's lives. They're out in society to where society, when, we, when they find out, hey, like, these are men who have done decades in prison and we're not wearing it. They can't tell. It's so it's it's such a uh, an example on, on how strong the human spirit is, and you know what a life of forgiveness looks like. If if we as men can produce that you know type of life for ourselves and for our communities, like what can we do? What happens when we start to live, you know, as family as a whole, like everybody? That every day I wake up and I think about that, and I'm just like, you know, what's next? What can we do? So that fuels me. And I'm hoping that, you know, if brothers in there uh, are getting an opportunity to hear this, like, and if the loved ones can tell them, like, all the amazing things that you're thinking of that you can do with your freedom, you can do them. You can do them. Uh, your past does not have to dictate your future. Um, and it will not decimate your dreams. Like, the only person who could do that is you. So, so, so live, keep talking about them, keep planning, act now as if it's going to happen. Whatever, even though you, whatever knowledge you're acquiring and you think to yourself, like, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be able to use this. You will tell yourself you will, and you will. Now, I didn't know how I was going to use my business degrees, but here I am working for nonprofit organizations and we're making management decisions and we're talking about, you know, what healthcare plans we're going to get and you know, how we're going to do expansion and all these other things. So, you know, keep getting it, get after it. You can do it. I want to thank you, Manny. I remember uh, when we first became friends uh, while we're in prison, uh, we were working on a, on a project in there. You were working on a project. You were a part of a, a committee to bring a TED talk to the prison. Mm-hmm. And I remember that was the first time I met you. And over the years, you know, you mentioned that job you had where you would, you'd clean inside the hospital area, uh, medical we called it. And I remember going when I didn't really like going to medical much, but when I went to medical, I'd see you always cleaning and doing your best outside of medical. I remember walking laps with you. I remember doing our work with Hartnell College and having the freshman and sophomore college students come in and us doing two and three day workshops with them. And I remember work, our work together in the Phoenix Alliance uh, to train on transformational perspectives on new ways of thinking, new ways of believing, new ways of being. And the work you did with your brother, your celly, you know, James Jacobs, uh, 88. And I remember your heart. I remember seeing you in the visiting room. I remember us laughing in the gym, you know, working out in the back, making burritos, celebrating birthdays. And we, you were right. 
we were able to create an island of transformation in there. We were able to form a brotherhood, sort of like that movie, The Band of Brothers. We were able to form a brotherhood in there that goes way beyond what people can comprehend out, out here. We, in a lot of ways, were in survival mode in there. You never knew when something was going to happen. And in some ways, by us being going against, going counterculture to prison norms, to political racial norms in prison, to going against that with boldness, embracing one another, loving one another, holding each other accountable, having Bible studies in the back of the building, eating meals in the back of the building, hugging one another every night before we locked it up. I remember your, your cell was the hangout spot before we came back from yard at nine o'clock and everybody hugging it out right there, you know, 88 and fat back and Ted and, and Robert. And that was the spot to stop by. And I'm so glad you're free. Welcome home. I hear your voice in your voice. I hear your freedom. I hear your peace. I hear your happiness. And I'm just so happy for you. Uh, I know that you're going to do amazing things. You're already doing amazing things. I wish you and your, and your wife and all those you know and love nothing but the best. I see nothing but greatness in you. And I know that you're going to make an impact and use your story to impact many lives. And I appreciate you sharing your story to make an impact. And that's what it's, that's what life's really about. It's um, living for a cause that's bigger than, our, bigger than ourselves, living for a cause that's bigger than ourselves, uh, loving others and giving back. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, Manny. No, I love you, brother. I love you too. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.